Listeners, we'd like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Alex, Sam, Jory, Shelly, Tara, Connor, the Reverends Langenstein, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. We are using it. We are. We're doing our best. We've we've got all these projects in the fire, but most of the projects that we've got going on right now are what we call unemployed. <laughs> It's, it's primarily what it is. I am finding I have irons in the fire, as they say, as I think you just said. I have plenty of leads for things. So we'll see. Oh, yeah. See what pans out. Yeah. And then we can use your money to um, do other stuff. We could like we could do that. We could do more of that. That'd be good. So if you have $5 or more a month to spare and would like to help us survive unemployment and then do other fun stuff like make new and exciting merch, go on the road donate to worthy causes in your name oh yeah I, that's a new one i haven't thought of that one i like that yeah because i donated to uh rolling nation so that we could get pastor chris's cd to have on the podcast yeah, last week that'll be good yeah yeah that'll so we could good. do more stuff like that if you give us our money Right. We need that money. It's what we really need in life. Uh, so if you would like to help us do that, you can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. You also get access to the patron-only podcast feed, which has bonus content from time to time. Oh, actually, bonus content last week. Uh, talking about Star Wars? No. We talk superheroes with Pastor Chris. It's a good time. You also can get access to the patron-only podcast in and I record, which is called Pillow Talk. And we have um, a bonus mystery episode, not bonus. We have a mystery episode uh, this week because I don't remember which one I picked. So we'll find out together to hear it's what we about. It's about mysteries. <laughs> if you're not in a position to support us financially, there are still ways you can help us out. You can subscribe to us in the podcasting app of your choice, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, share us on the platform of your choice, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just keep listening because that is good too. It is. And now, on to the show! Yeah, things are pretty much the same at What the Hell is a Pastor, except that we get a lot of hate listens now, which is fun. Interesting. Increases viewership, which I'm grateful for. One, two, five, nine! Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, if you can't tell, we do have another guest. Joe is gone for this episode. It is just me and our guest, a, a listener and former guest of the pod, Justin is back. Justin, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm, you know, man, we're making it happen. Make, making it be as good as possible. Justin is back. We're excited to have Justin back. He has finished up his first year at college uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm very jealous, and I'd love to hear more about that. In this episode, we're going to spend some time reconnecting with Justin and talking about whatever he would really like to talk about frankly i'm cool with it but but primarily to just sit around and and chat about his first year what that means for him how his relationships have changed or not have changed his relationships with his family with with friends with the church with with god with whatever he wants to talk about and i'm just really excited to have you on justin i think it's going to be good yeah i 
It's been a while since it's been on. A whole year has passed. I know last time I was on, Joe was like, we're going to check back in a year. And it's been like, I think to the day, exactly a year. So pretty cool. Yeah. Joe's good at that stuff. I would not be surprised if everything that is scheduled has been scheduled, you know, with like multiple layers of meaning, you know, in it. And so I just kind of, I just kind of go with it and hope for the best. So Justin, you, you're, you're at UPenn, you finished your first year. Tell me and the world about what it's like, the world, all 70 of us, about what it's like being at an Ivy League school like UPenn. Well, I got to Penn August 27th, 2021, during the pandemic. I, I finished, I graduated high school during the pandemic. And uh, I was really excited. I, I, was, I was so ready to leave my, my family farm and come to the big city of Philadelphia and <laughs> be independent. And uh, I, I think I adjusted really quickly. I, I, I did grow up on a farm. It's very true, very factual. And I, you know, I spent my days with like animals, specifically ducks and doves, my favorite, favorite birds. And now I'm here. And right now I'm in a, I live in a giant high rise, 20th floor. But coming to the city definitely changed a lot of my relationships, especially with my, my, like my family. Hmm. I think last time I was on the podcast, it was like right after like very traumatic events with my mother. Mm-hmm. And now that I have, like don't live with my parents, I, my relationship with them has completely changed. I talk to them maybe, maybe once a month, <laughs> like sure. maybe once a month, my mother would text me, wish me happy birthday or something like that, or ask me when I'm coming home. Um, and I, I honestly really enjoy that. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm glad I'm going home. I'm going home tomorrow. So right. the first time I'm going home in, in three months, but my parents, I think I'm like the favorite child now. It was like a, a real quick turnaround. Like, not living there is is the key to your success in my household apparently so they they're excited to see me my my sister-in-law and my brother and their son are currently living in my in my parents house uh my brother is 28 and uh, my sister-in-law is expecting a baby and um really and they're living in, in my house in their like childhood homes because they got evicted and a whole bunch of stuff went down and my parents like i'm the least of their concern and I love that. That is, right. that is my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't awesome. want. I don't want them talking like thinking about me. And that's exactly what I have accomplished. So that is that is what has happened. <laughs> that's good. I've I've discovered uh, as well since you know, I went to college only like thirty minutes from my parents, and so I don't really I didn't really have the same sort of I didn't have the same kind of relationship you did with your parents, but but I also didn't have the same kind of like break that you're, you're experiencing but i have found that since since leaving entirely you know since moving out of state going to seminary now getting a phd like even that has also maybe made my relationship a little better with my parents as well like where that distance is actually a good thing because now you're you and i'm sure as i don't mean to put words in your mouth but your parents are now seeing you as a, as an independent human being, because you are, you know, and you're seeing yourself that way. And I think that's great. That's awesome. So you live in a high, I, I noticed your, I, I was admiring your apartment on the video <laughs> listeners. He, uh, a high rise, is it right in Philly? I'm living in West Philadelphia. So like right in front of me is the window and I see the whole skyline and I'm about a mile from city center, the hall area. And um, I'm kind of like right in the heart of university city. 
which is where Drexel and UPenn and University, like, um, like they're all right there. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm kind of like in the, the heart of it. And my research job pays me well enough that I can live in a nice apartment for the summer. That's so great. That's I'm kind of living it up, actually. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I definitely want to talk more about your research job uh, here in a little bit. But tell us about what you're studying at UPenn right now. I think you mentioned your when you first came on what your major was going to be. But but where have you settled? What 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 is what are some of the things you're doing? So um, for everyone to to know, um, Ethan has been like the one person I've gone to for like all of my academic advice. So he was the first person to tell me to apply to any of the IVs. Mm-hmm. He just told me to give it a shot. And I did. And I got here. And then he told me to major in sociology, which I'm still doing. I'm also, I'm double majoring now, though, in religious studies and sociology. Yeah, there you go. That's what yeah. I did. That's awesome. So, so um, I'm, I'm like Ethan's little prodigy person <laughs> following his, his plans in life. No, no, no. So um, I'm, let's see, for sociology, I am interested in concentrating, although it's early yet, uh, to figure that out, and concentrating in uh, inequality and opportunity. Um, There's eight concentrations in sociology, and that is the one that I'm most interested in. In the realm of sociology, I'm interested in race and ethnicity, uh, also with gender and sexuality. So that's kind of where I like to study. I have not been here very long, so I I have like no classes in it. I, my first semester, I took sociology of race and ethnicity, which was kind of groundbreaking for me. Hmm. And I had a really good relationship with the professor, um, Professor Wendy Roth, and she's she's the graduate chair uh, for UPenn for sociology, and it, she she's been kind of like my mentor uh, of yeah. sorts of figuring everything out. And I was so happy to, to have like have her for my first semester. She taught a freshman seminar, and it was like the freshman sem- seminars are meant to like. Get you relationships with like high up professors, so you so you can kind of get along in the major, and like I, I it just happened perfectly. Like I am like the the person that they would put on like the website for sociology with my relationship with Wendy. So that that, that was kind of cool. And then, so my first semester, I took only like four classes, but one of my classes was worth the like the credits of two classes, but it was really the work of like three classes. So I had an interesting first semester. And uh, I didn't do any religious studies my first semester. I only got into that my second semester, Professor Donovan Schaefer. Mm-hmm. And um, he is the one professor I'm working with for the summer. Uh, and that's, that, is, that has been my year academically so far. That's awesome. That's awesome. I know that the sociology department at UPenn, that's, uh, if I, in another world, Justin, I, I would have done more with sociology than just, just majored in it in college. And I always admired, you know, the, just the way the department looked at UPenn. I just thought there was some world-class folks there. I mean, it's, it's UPenn. It's, of course, there's world-class folks there. But, but the department looks so cool. And so I'm really glad that you get to really experience that firsthand. And I think the world of Donovan Schaefer, I, I think his work is, you know, I've been exposed to his work working on what I'm doing at UVA. And I just think it's, I think he's a really great writer. And I think his... I think his approach with affect theory and religion, material culture, I think really is so cool. Um, so did you take a class with Dr. Schaefer your second semester? And, and what right. was that class? Um, it was called Sacred Stuff. Yeah, that's good. And it was, we essentially just explored the idea of like, what is sacred? Mm-hmm. And he broke the class in like three segments, uh, sacred things, sacred objects, 
and then sacred places and then sacred bodies. Mm -hmm. So we did some case studies. We started out with kind of like the, like the theory, religious theory, essentially, with like uh, Emil Durkheim and uh, Machia Eliade. And I know I talked quite a bit with Ethan and, and Joe previously about those people. And I think Joe had written a, a thing on Eliotti in grad school and she got like marks down because she didn't know he's a fascist. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember, I remember that. It was, yeah, that was formative for me. And then I, I really enjoyed the, the segment on sacred bodies um, just because it's, that was the one that was supposed to be less Christocentric because Hmm. Really, really, the the other ones are very Western thinking. Yeah, uh, the sacred places and sacred things and sacred bodies would be like kind of more the the Eastern um, bringing of religious thought into it. Specifically, we talked about dancing as like a, a religious expression. Um, I don't remember the author we read, but it was a very popular book. I, if I remember properly. Um, so that was that was that class and. Uh, I, I already was very interested in religious studies, obviously. So um, I was I was thinking about um, majoring, double majoring, trying to figure it out. Uh, I already planned to, to minor in religious studies, and um, then talking with like Professor Schaefer and with my advisor, we kind of figured out that it was very plausible if I just took like five classes a semester through my whole whole four years, I, I could do it really easily. So I just decided, well, that is kind of what I was going to do anyways. <laughs> like lots of religious studies classes in sociology, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Not to listeners, not to get super nerdy, but I'm going to do that just for a second. Like one of the cool things about, and you, you've experienced this firsthand, like the reason why religious studies and sociology make great double major bedfellows is almost entirely because of Durkheim. Because mm -hmm. Durkheim, you know, I mean, probably as far as I'm concerned, like Durkheim, in my experience, was like the first thinker I read in college that made me go, oh, okay. You know, like, like this guy, his, his brain is so big, you know, like I see, I see the connections he's seeing and, and like reading elementary forms of religious life. I just reread it, you know, this, my last semester in, in a theory class I took, you know, in my program. And I was just reminded once again, like, wow, I mean, he, it's such a, it, his, his theory and his approach is, it, I obviously like historically has shaped both fields, but, but it still remains incredibly relevant. I found like, it's still a sort of one of those singularly brilliant moments where he goes, Oh, well, religion and society are sort of the same thing. You know, God and society are sort of the same thing. Like in many in the ways in which we do stuff, I just, I think it's great. I think it's great. And on that, um, my, my intro to sociology professor, uh, complete sociologist knew nothing about religious studies, but he knew that Durkheim, wrote that book and it was fundamental to both uh, studies. And we had a good conversation about it, probably like 10 minutes during office hours. We just talked about religious studies and how the formation of like social norms and all that kind of like, just like directly correlates. And it's, uh, it was really nice. That's cool. That's cool. It sounds like, you know, when I imagine an Ivy league school, I imagine, and, and, and this is, I think you're demonstrating that this is, not not necessarily true i always picture just this giant school you know oh you went to an ivy league school everything is big and impressive and amazing and and i think it's usually cast that way by little liberal arts colleges right like liberal arts colleges are like oh well you know 
you could go to the really big fancy places or you can come here and have really intimate relationships with with professors and staff folks and 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 other and other students but it really sounds like justin that you pen is also facilitating that for you like like that you are able to have good relationships with professors and intimate relationships and meaningful relationships with with faculty and staff and 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 fellow students even at a place you know that's has this incredible prestige to it absolutely i think that i think i'm benefited by my majors being like sociology and religious studies are very small majors at Penn. Sure. And Penn is known for its business and its yep. medicine, which are kind of like everything's kind of fuddled towards them. And I'm, I'm certain that if I was in any sort of way a STEM or business person, uh, I would not have the, the benefit of these relationships. I also don't know if, how relevant they are to their fields to have good relationships with professors. But, you know, I, I think I have been pretty lucky in, in having my relationships with pretty much every class I've had taken so far, having good relationships with my professors and having that kind of close-knit uh, class feel, um, which is pretty cool. That is cool. That sounds great. So you've been at UPenn for a year. You're learning all this great stuff. You're developing relationships with, with your professors and stuff like that. As you reflect on that year, Justin, what would you say, this is going to be kind of a, maybe a deeper question. What, is there something that stands out to you as being like, wow, I, this is totally different now. Like I used to be, I used to think like this. I used to be like this. I used to feel like this, but now I feel like this. Like, is there something like that for you that, that really strikes you or is it more of a gradual thing or no change at all? I don't think anything was shockingly different. I kind of feel like, so there's this practice in gardening. When you're gardening, you put like a, like a can, like a garbage can over top of certain vegetables like mm. garlic or um, celery or stuff like that so that it grows really tender. And I kind of feel like I, I got home, I was had this garbage can over top of me. I was in complete darkness. And um, then all of a sudden I was like kind of just lifted out uh, into, mm. the, into the sunlight. Um, and I, w I, w I didn't change. Like, I wasn't, like, physically different. Sure. Uh, or I didn't really, wasn't really thinking differently. I was just more allowed to express myself um, and to respond to the environment around me. And I think, I think that's kind of just, like, been, like, the overarching uh, difference in probably my life a year ago versus today. I th that's really broad. But I think it's, like, really specific in how I just, like, interact with certain people, which I, predominantly, like, my friends. Like my friends, I, I'm, a lot, I'm a lot more close with than I ever was before. I, I have, you know, hide less things. I can um, spend more time with them. Um, I don't have to worry about like what people are thinking. Like yeah. I, I'm just like a little more free. And I think that's probably the biggest change in my personality. And it's something I'm really grateful for as well. Yeah, that really is a good thing to hear. You know, being able to be free with who you are because you're now in a place that not only accepts you more for who you are, but you're now in a place where like the ethos is, no, you're supposed to, you're supposed to grow. You're supposed to be exploring and experimenting and figuring out in a, in a fuller way, like what kind of a person you're going to be. I, I always find that really exciting. And I knew it was going to be that way, you know, like not to, not to be like, oh, I knew it, but like, that's how college is. That's, that's one of the cool things about leaving and doing stuff like this is that as you say like the the can or the trash can or whatever comes out and you now off and now you begin to 
to take in other kinds of nutrients and other kinds of growth. Uh, that's really great. That's really cool. Do you, do you, do you feel happier? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. Um, that's why I just yeah. wanted you to say it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I've, I really have very little, few problems in my life um, at this point, which I, I, I'm very aware of. I'm very aware of all that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of a blessing while I have them. I don't know, I'm kind of living on the high, but aware of like everything that kind of goes into that. And also like the potential, like the potentiality of like me not being um, in that, in that position anymore. So I'm, I'm just going to enjoy myself while it lasts and we'll see where it goes. Uh, and I'll hope, I, I hope I, that I'll remain happy for the rest of ever, you know? <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. I know you plan, you plan to still be happy. You expect everything to fall apart. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. No, I think that's really great. So, you know, you're, you're just finished your first year. Like I, this is kind of a, a silly question that you, you might not have an answer for has your thoughts about the future change. Like, do you, even though it's just been your first year, like what as, you know, you, I'm not looking, I'm not fishing. Like I'm going to go to theology school. That's not what I'm fishing for, but like in what way has these new things that you've experienced, like changed or augmented the, what you see as a possibility in the future? So I, I think my plans as they stand for like remain very much the same. They haven't, like, I don't, I don't really foresee myself going anywhere else besides into theology later on, mm. but I have thought about other options uh, more seriously. And I think that's a lot to do with uh, my first professor, Wendy, she, she being the graduate chair, she really encouraged me to like pursue research this past year. Yeah. And uh, I like, she's a, a great reference and, um, I know that if I ever was planning if a late junior into senior year and figuring out like where I want to go from there, I'll have to like more seriously and in depth think about going for sociology as for like later on in grad school, because I have kind of a great reference with, with her being yeah. that she, she's the one who makes the decision <laughs> and you uh, pen being for sociology is really good. And having that, having such a, like a clear opportunity for that is kind of, something I, I should be aware of not passing up and it wouldn't really negate going for theology in the future anyways, after that. Sure. Right. So like, I, like I, I'm a little aware of like the, the, the possibilities there. I want to take advantage of like the privilege I've been offered. So mm -hmm. I, I've been thinking about, although my plans haven't changed. Totally get it. And, and I'd be in the same position you're in too as well, man. Like, like, you know, having opportunities open up when particularly when you're, you know, just starting your higher education career, right? Like you, suddenly you, you never realize all of the possibilities, all of the chances, all of the, the opportunities that you can, you can have now because of your, because of your connection to UPenn or your connection to, to uh, Roth. That was her last name, right? Dr. Roth, yes. Dr. Roth, right? Like, like all of that is, all of that is so cool and so great. And, and the nice thing is, is that, you know, particularly with sociology, all kinds of theological people do sociology, like all kinds of, I mean, that, that, that works so well with everything. I know that UPenn is probably the school that like, I spent the most of my energy begging the universe to have the right people in their religion department. 
so that I could justify applying. And it just never happened. That would have been amazing. I'd have loved to have, have, have done UPenn because then I wouldn't have had to leave. I, I wouldn't have to take grandchildren away from my family. You know, that's really the main problem mm -hmm. that they had with me. That's so cool, brother. I, I love that. I love that. You know, that that the, everything you're saying is great. It, it's it's exciting as somebody who likes you and as somebody who has taken an interest, you know, and, and in watching you figure things out and like do really, really great things, like to hear that you are not only be enmeshing yourself really well in your new environment, but that you yourself are discovering, oh, wow, like I, I actually have some opportunity here. Like I have some, I can, I can do all kinds of stuff. And in particular, you're discovering that research is fun. It took me forever to figure out that research was fun. So now, now you're, you're in, you're in a, the right position for that. That's cool. What are you researching? I, I'd love to hear about this job that you have for uh, with uh, Dr. Schaefer, what do you, what do you have? Yeah, to uh, so I'm helping uh, Dr. Schaefer start his next book. So he just finished up a book, and I don't know. It's like a few-year cycle of like when academics write their books, and I don't think the book is out yet. The one he just wrote, it's still in the publishing process. But he's he's already begun thinking about his next book, and he wants to look into. Confederate monuments as, as a topic of interest and to see if his ideas around like affect theory can apply to it. We, we don't really have like a, you know, obviously we don't have a theory yet. We don't have, we don't have an argument yet. We're just looking at Confederate monuments and how they might affect like the, the region and the people around them in that Confederate monuments aren't really like a, a pillar of like society's thinking. They're, they're, they're an interaction. It's a two way street. Confederate monuments also affect us back. Like we, we created these things and they are affecting us backwards. And I'm, I'm kind of looking into that specifically black opinions when they are first erected. So I'm going through newspapers, through like a whole bunch of archives, looking at, looking for black voices up on these Confederate monuments during that time period, which has been interesting so far. And I've, I've definitely noticed that there's a lot more to it than uh, I think any of us had expected. Hmm. There's a huge wealth of opinions on these Confederate monuments, both white and black and any other race or ethnicity between that. Any regional differences, North and South, that's, that's been really important. Mm -hmm. So specifically, I've been looking at black voices of any region, but I've found that white voices in the North and South have obviously differed greatly. And I've been kind of looking at this past two weeks, I've only just started, like the differences between white people in the North and South in their opinions on the Confederate monuments. So clearly the, the South was for these Confederate monuments. The, 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 the North was not. And the, the white people in the North differed in their reasoning on these Confederate monuments, um, like why they were against it, than the, the, like black people did, obviously. Mm. They thought it was like, you know, a monument to treason and, and, and kind of like the more obvious uh, reasonings politically, I don't know, easy, less divisive, uh, sure. honestly, like uh, I would have to say, uh, it's less It's less politically divisive to say, like General Lee was treasonous than it is to say General Lee was, you know, a slave master, slave driver, he, he enslaved human beings and, you, you know, supported oppression on black people throughout the entire country. It's, it's like, obviously there's, there's a difference in, in political intensity 
And I've been kind of looking at how black people have responded to both white parties, the North and the South. There's been, there's been great controversy over the largest Confederate monument in the country, uh, which is Stone Mountain. And that's in Georgia, right outside Atlanta. Yeah. It is, uh, has General Lee, um, Jefferson Davis, and Stonewall Jackson, and they're carved on the side of this ginormous uh, mountain. It's like a thousand feet tall mountain. It's a sheer stone face. It's bigger than Mount Rushmore. It's kind of incredible. And I've been kind of looking at the controversy of that. That's been my last two weeks. I'm not very far into it yet. Sure, sure. That sounds really cool. It also sounds, if I may, like deeply theological too. I I know that Dr. Schaefer has that has some theology background. I, I'm pretty sure he taught for a little while at Oxford, something like that. And so I know he's got some of that training. I don't know if he's taking it that way, but but I, I there's something there's something deeply theological about thinking of objects in ways that that affect and shape and 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 form us sort of intangibly i think that's that's really interesting i like that a lot yeah i've heard about uh i've seen pictures and i've heard of of um the monument you're talking about and it is wild man like like i you are in the thick of it i've seen like politicians do like crazy speeches in front of it and whoo you know and, and and really what you're looking at is is just sort of other than the fact that it's a little gaudy, you know, you're, you're looking at something that is that is incredible to to memorialize, right? Like, wow, what do we make of this? Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. I love it because I'm purely curious. Who is paying you that you can afford the 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 uh, apartment? Like, is is Dr. Schaefer paying you, or is UPenn just like made of money for their research assistants? Uh, UPenn is just made of money. Period. There's that's fucking uh, that, crazy. That, that's just it. UPenn has a annual budget of eleven billion dollars, <laughs> and it's a primarily a research institute. That is, let's see, Pennsylvania. The state budget is forty billion dollars, so it is like more than a quarter of yeah. the state budget. So, like, obviously. Penn not being affiliated with Pennsylvania. It is two separate things. Not to be confused with Penn State. Uh, right. And um, so I am a project, it's called PERM. Uh, it's Peer Undergraduate Men- Research Mentorship. Okay. And it's, it is a, is a program that is designed for first and second year students who want to get into research, but don't have any experience. Hmm. So I've been told, although I have not experienced this, obviously, that getting into research when you're first starting out is really difficult because everyone wants you to have experience. So, and like all professors looking for people with experience. So it's really hard to get into research if you don't have experience to start out. So this is sort of like a option for professors who don't want to take any risks. So they, the professors essentially get us for free and the university pays uh, us directly. So I got a lump sum of $5,000 the whole summer for all my work right up front. And the, I work with a professor and I just try it out. So sure. if I can, if, if I don't like it, I can just quit. And if the professor is sick of me, they can get rid of me. Or if the professor finishes their work early, I can just go. It is kind of like a, a no risk situation for the professors, but it does give us like excellent opportunity to work with professors and you know gain that relationship and the research experience. So we can do you know more in depth or official research into the future. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, you're exactly right, by the way, about about 
how difficult it is to get into research without things like this. Like the only reason that, that I had any research experience was because that they offered me uh, the job, a part-time job at the library at Wesley Theological Seminary. And, and if I wouldn't have had that, like that's the only thing I have that like I can use to leverage that I have research experience outside of that. I wouldn't know how anybody got research experience except with how you're describing. So that's fantastic. That's super cool. I could actually listen and I could just do academics with you all day, but Joe will not be happy if we don't <laughs> talk about religion and God and, and, and stuff like that. So we're going to do it. I promise Joe, when we first interviewed you and we first you know got to know you, we know that you're connected to a church that another friend of the podcast, Nick, was a pastor at. We know that you have a relationship with Nick and, and his wife, Angie, and we know that you were pretty involved with that church. Obviously, you've moved away. Things are very different now. You know, what, what is sort of the state of your relationship to your faith or to religion or, or to things like this? College, you, there is, as you know, there is no right or wrong answer for this. And so you will not disappoint or excite me, depending on your answer. I will be just as excited and disappointed as I always am. So what, what, how are you doing there, Justin? What's going on <laughs> on that front? So I obviously went to UMC with Nick and Nick, Nick and Angie and I were very close. I was sort of like the impressionable young person interested in theology. And they were also young people interested in theology. And we just happened to not be very conservative together. So we bonded over that. And I went to all the Bible studies. The Bible studies were full of like all the old folks from the church. And then there was me, I was like 14 years old, 15 years old going to these Bible studies. So I, I was, I was officially indoctrinated by Nick and now I am, now I'm too far gone. <laughs> uh, so, so that was great. And, um, Nick, Nick left, uh, about the same time I did. And I guess there was like a two month overlap and I had gone to YTI with, uh, Ian so That's I, right. I forgot about that. Thanks for reminding me about that. Yes. So I, I was kind of having fun <laughs> and I wasn't really with the church community during these two months because I just graduated. I yeah. was trying to, I was working as much as possible before I started college and it was already two years into the pandemic. So I, I really wasn't like it, that much involved. The only thing I was really doing was doing like food pantry because my mother runs it. Mm -hmm. So she had me be the manual labor because I didn't really attend, you know, online church. I apologize to whoever listens to this and does online church. Sorry. So I went to the in-person services, but uh, it kind of dwindled down there towards the end. And once I got to Penn, I, I started going to St. Mary's at Penn. It's an Episcopal church which is a little bit more my fashion anyways, because I, I tend to be more high church than most UMCs tend to be. Although I'm really, I'm not high church in Episcopal land. I am high church in Methodist land. So I, I like I like to have my Charles Wesley every week and I like the organ, but I don't really enjoy, you know, a monstrance ever. Right, right. <laughs> and all the bowing and genuflecting and crossing is, is a lot for me. But uh, I, I did go there. I think I went there like two times the first semester. I was still figuring myself out. And then this past semester, I went like every week. Wow, that's great. Which was, 
was, it was, it was pretty good. I got really kind of closer to the, the rector there, Reverend Mary Claire. Uh, and she, she's just leaving ministry now after nine years there. Wow. Um, wow. She, she, I think is finally tired out of ministry. That's good. I guess it's, this is the story of the podcast, uh, I believe. That is <laughs> um, essentially the story. What the hell was um, a pastor? Yeah. So my relationship now is that I've been I've been dancing around different churches in Philadelphia. So there are UMCs in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. They exist, but they're elusive. There is there is Arch Street UMC. That is the big famous one in Center City. It is right next to City Hall and the big Masonic Temple, right next to the Basilica, kind of like in the center of it all. And they do a whole bunch of justice work. It's really cool. I wanted to apply for a job there for the summer, but I already got this one. So too bad for me. And I actually have never been there hmm. because they haven't closed down for COVID the entire time I've been here for the whole year. Wow. Uh, wow. They are, they're extremely cautious of COVID and good for them, but I guess bad for me. I don't know if that works out like that. Uh, I just haven't, I haven't got to go to any UMCs um, since I've been in Philadelphia. I have gone home um, maybe like four times so far being here. So I, I went home. Every time I go home, I go to the church usually like once. Sure. Sunday service or whatever. But uh, my relationship with like in worship at UMCs has kind of come to zero. Like we're, we're declining fast. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's, I don't really mind. I, I'm still very Methodist in all of my thinking and practice. There just isn't really the opportunity for me here. Sure. I don't find that to be a bad thing because I can kind of like survive in an Episcopalian church. But I think I think I'm just doing good because I can kind of do my own thing without having, you know, the old folks who you know practically raised me looking at me talking about like Black liberation theology and all of a sudden, <laughs> right? You know, saying radical things. I don't have to worry about any sort of like that kind of stuff. Yeah, I totally understand. I totally understand. I'm glad that you you got connected the way you did with the Episcopal church, your, your thoughts on high church really speak to me because on one hand, like the pandemic has for me personally has all but destroyed all high church sensibilities that I have. And I'm like five seconds away from becoming a Quaker at any given moment. (laughs) But on the other hand, like if I do, if, if I must do high church, it's organ and it's just four Charles Wesley hymns, you know, every day. Why? Because you can't go wrong with Charles Wesley theology. You can't. You can't go wrong. He's right every time. If I could, I mean, I pastor still. I pastor two small churches in Virginia now. And if I could, I I would only do like Come Thou Long Expected Jesus like every Sunday. And and I'd Mm -hmm. be like, cool. That sounds good. I trust this one. Ah, I think that's fun. I really do. There's a really great Quaker meeting house in Philadelphia. You should go. I should live vicariously through you. So you can go and because <laughs> uh, the Quaker meeting houses near me, they're all their uh, pro, like meetings are like when I need to be at my church, uh, actually be doing my job. So it ends up not working out. I think that's really cool, Justin. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it, I bet it's a really, I don't want to tell you how you feel, but I'll just ask you, how, how does it feel to to go back to your home church, you know, those times having now, now that you've moved out, now that you're doing new things, now that you going to new churches, like the times you are going back, how does that feel? It's kind of like very nostalgic. Like hmm. I don't get nostalgic here. Like I don't like think, Oh, I kind of miss my, I kind of miss the church. I, I kind of miss the music. I don't, I don't do that, but I feel it when I'm there. I'm like, Oh, they, they actually, like this is kind of this is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. I, I did miss this. I just didn't know I missed it. You know, I 
it's the only UMC I visit in the past like nine months. So it's, I don't know, I guess I feel like, I feel like it's something like, it's, a, it's like the place I want that for my, for my theology, uh, it's, it's the closest aligning to what I think and what I believe in like worship practice. I'm very built up by that church and that like it, it uses the organ every Sunday and it's always a Charles Wesley hymn. And I can always, you know, count on the very Methodist takes, um, in, in any of the, any of the things, mm-hmm. which is, it's just like very, like a place I can kind of relax. I don't have to be on my guard. Sure. I don't have to like defend myself unless I start talking about the things I'm, I'm interested in, uh, like black liberation theology or any sort of, any sort of radical ideas. I can kind of just sit back and relax. I don't have to like worry, I guess, unless I'm literally the one preaching, which happens on occasion, but not sure. recently. Sure. Yeah. I totally hear you. I really do. And, and for me, that's why Quakers attract me because everybody's just quiet. Now I don't have to know what they're thinking. I could just be like, great, awesome. No, I, I get that. I really do. I think that's, I think it's really cool that you, you, you're kind of aware in, uh, of yourself and your relationship with this church and, and, and your faith in that way. I think that's, that mean you're already in a better place than I was, you know, going to college and not having a clear sense of, of what I believed or what I thought about church or you know, I, I knew what I thought about church. I knew I just didn't want to go, you know, but like, I knew that, you know, I, I, I wasn't that, that level of reflection wasn't there. And so it really feels good, you know, to hear you reflect in those ways, you know, in light of everything you're doing. There is one more thing. I've kind of been tiptoeing around it. So the final project for Ian's, Ian's YTI thing was yeah. to create uh, like, a, like, a, like a project at your home church. So I, I really hated the idea of making like a community garden and then leaving. Like I really disliked that idea. Um, and that it was like kind of a, I don't know, like a once and done. And I, I didn't have to really engage with the community whatsoever. And so I decided to do a, a sort of justice uh, group from the church who would kind of look at justice issues in worship or in accessibility for the church doing like racial education uh, kind of programs in the church uh, and partnering with like, community uh, members in different churches and in different spaces to kind of like promote uh, ideas of liberation and of justice. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that got shot down uh, at the board meeting, surprisingly, I guess. I don't know. I kind of expected it to be a little bit better than it was, but they were like, why do we need this? And you're leaving, how are you going to do this? And I was still pretty determined. So I said, why don't we do like a pilot group and see if it works Hmm. so that we can kind of do like a, like a committee in the future, like an official committee, Methodist all the way. Oh yeah. Committee on justice. And so, so we tried to do this pilot group. I moved away and things, I got less time on my hands and I had to like organize all this stuff. We had like two meetings and so far, and I, I'm, I'm still supposed to be working on the next meeting, but I have not really found the time to put my energy in, actually. Sure, sure. I, I have time. I just don't know if I have the energy to, like, contact everyone um, and, uh, like, organize everything, which seems to be kind of the burden for me. Uh, mm. Is like I just have to organize everything for it. Um, but there's, like, brilliant people who are interested in um, being in, in this group. And doing the kind of like that work, I think most excitingly is there's a just two professors of criminology 
from, um, I think it's University of Scranton or maybe Penn State, um, the Scranton campus. And they are, they're, they're like the people that I should be talking to about like mass incarceration. Sure. And doing that kind of work. And um, so that's been encouraging. And that's kind of been my relationship with the church. I haven't really like totally thrown myself off. I just haven't physically been in the building. I've been in contact with them pretty incessantly right. since I left. That's really cool. Well, and, and, you know, what you're describing is such a great combination of both, you know, having one foot sort of in church life and then one foot in academic life, right? Like where you see how these things come together, these other professors and, and people of faith and all of it kind of coming together, I think is really exciting. Uh, and it's stuff that I like to do as well, right? Like it's stuff that I, I see it as such a really cool, untapped way in which you you can not only get a lot of really good work done, but like a way in which people can be talking to each other kind of across these boundaries that we, we you know, invent. Like for me, Justin, like part of my story is there's a, a professor in college who's both my sociology professor and a Mennonite pastor who to this day is still like an incredibly important person in my life who like was the first person to show me that all of these things can be mixed and be in dialogue and, and have conversations. Right. And, and really good work can come from it. Not just, not just the, you know, kind of evangelical work of the church where we spread the gospel. Right. But like, but like just really good hard work of making communities better, of aiding the poor and the oppressed, of, 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 of recreating and reimagining new structures and, and systems that allow us to do um, good things rather than evil things. Like, I think that's cool. I think it's cool as crap. So we're, we're approaching an hour. Um, we're not quite there yet. We still got some time. What, what other things are happening in your life, Justin? What do you want to tell the world about that you haven't gotten the <laughs> chance to, to tell people about yet? Oh boy. Um, tell the world. Maybe let's, I did not prepare for this question. I'm so sorry. Questions. I should, I oh, should have given it to you. What do, what is my proclamation to the world? What, <laughs> what is my gospel? Uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Um, I've been so eclectic with my thinking recently. Like I, I've been, so there's, I like to do some of this thing where it's, I learn really specific things about really obscure things. Yes. Uh, so I, I love to like learn the weirdest things uh, in history or in society or whatever. And then use them as sort of like a case study for like something else I'm thinking about for like, you know, theor theorizing things, which uh, is that is something that I think everyone does. I just definitely explain that way too. <laughs> too probably, but Sometimes I like to think about one thing and it helps me think about another thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what I mean by that is that I've been trying to integrate really, well, I haven't been trying to integrate yet. So I don't have a big idea. I don't have a, a massive theory. I don't have anything I want to, I want to proclaim to the world. I've been, I've been diving into newspapers from the twenties, um, about Confederate monuments and all I've seen have been like really, really nasty things being said about people who, who do not deserve those things to be said about them. And I don't know what to do with that yet. Um, sure. And I'm still working on, on, on figuring out how to integrate that with uh, other things that I'm also interested in, um, 
like say theology <laughs> um, or gardening. I also like the garden. So maybe I will try to integrate whatever, you know, profane things that are being said about black people in these really old newspapers. Um, maybe I'll figure out a way to bring that into gardening. But I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, right now I am in my phase of, I don't know, I guess, mulling things over, learning really specific details about really obscure things. I don't have a message. And I think, I think that's okay. I think that's a good thing actually, that I, I don't have a message to, I don't have a success story yet. I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, I guess, uh, I'm gonna do something really broad. Maybe like, don't forget to love each other or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's a good one. It is okay that you do not have like a, like a massive proclamation. I like this. I like that you are, you know, taking, taking everything in Justin and, and thinking about it in, in, you know, really intense and specific ways. I love that you find yourself in the midst of this research project you're working on. Like, I love that you find yourself in the beginning of thinking through what this really specific obscure thing you're researching in, how it might be able to be theorized or thought through in these other ways. Like that means you've got the, you've got like the skill and the mind and the, the, the drive to like, really, I think be a good academic in like, in like the best ways. Right. Like, and, and you've got good mentors for that. I think, you know, particularly in somebody like Donovan Schaefer, who, you know, whose work I find to be, very connected to like the stuff of, of life, right? Like even, even in his most theorized, you know, he's, he's still, he's still interested in things like, why do we feel shame? You know, like, like that's like the coolest stuff to me. And so I think you're in really good hands and I really look forward, just, I look forward to all of the stuff you think about and you end up writing about and um, wherever you find yourself going after you pen or you know in the next three years you've got plenty of time so i think that's awesome Justin. i really do well we do have a little time for a mini sode if you want to do one if not i understand um but if it's okay with you i'm going to wrap up the main episode that's good i i do have time for mini sode i kind of planned for it so um i'm all good for that terrific all right. Well, friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Justin, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor? is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schomolf, performed by Joe Schomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptivedisciples, on Twitter at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to pillow talk, merch, signed cards, custom essays, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to love one another, friends.